we have we have really great deacons here, and it's easy to uh, take them for granted and not realize how much work they do for us on a weekly basis until both of them are gone on the same day, and then we forget about simple things like taking the offering. So hopefully they'll be back next week. Until then, uh, would you take your Bibles and turn to the book of Luke chapter 4. Luke chapter 4, the passage is printed in the bulletin for you as well. You're welcome to follow along there or in your Bibles or on your phones or whatever is easiest for you. Today we're getting into what is finally the, the real beginning of Jesus' public ministry. We've had all of this introduction through the infancy narratives, the birth narratives, all the stories we're so familiar with, with the shepherds and the angels. Then we had the baptism of Jesus, and we had the temptation in the wilderness, and all of that was basically prologue. And now today, finally, we're getting into what is the beginning of Jesus' actual public ministry that's going to start in chapter 4, verse 14, and we're going to read from there uh, through verse 30. And so, if you will, uh, as is our custom, if you're able, would you please join me in standing for the reading of God's holy word today? Luke chapter 4, starting in verse 14. And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and a report about him went out throughout all the surrounding country. And he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. As was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, the recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, Is not this Joseph's son? And he said to them, Doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, Physician, heal yourself. What we have heard you did at Capernaum do in your hometown as well. And he said, Truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his own hometown. But in truth I tell you, There were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the heavens were shut up three years and six months, and a great famine came over all the land, and Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. When they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath. And they rose up and drove him out of the town, and they brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built, so they could throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went away. Let's pray. Lord, we're thankful for your word. Uh, It is such a gift of your grace that you teach us, you instruct us, you guide us in the paths of righteousness. And so, Lord, even now, we've read your word, we've opened it, We're going to learn from it and and set our minds to studying it. We pray for the help of your spirit that you yourself would be our teacher. 
Lord, that you would open your word to us, give us eyes to see, give us ears to hear, give us hearts to receive and accept your word, and the diligence and the obedience and the faithfulness that we might practice what we learn from your word in our lives. So Lord, glorify your son through your word. We pray that you will do that by the power of your spirit in the name of Jesus. Amen. Please be seated. Well, the last couple of months, uh, we've really seen, uh, as we've been getting into kind of the thick of campaign season, lots of candidates are really stepping up the commercials, the junk mail, stepping up everything about their campaigns. And honestly, if you know me, I'm not into politics at all. If you want to have a really good political discussion, I'm just not your guy. You'll have to find someone else. Uh, I don't have a lot of interest in that. However, this particular time, there is something at least mildly interesting. You know, we're in that season now where there's still a lot of candidates. Soon it will be narrowed down to a smaller field, but right now the field is, is still pretty big. And what makes it at least mildly interesting is that you have this scenario now where every candidate is, is sort of casting their own vision. Right? They're all casting a vision of what our country ought to be like. This is the way they desire it to be. And so they're trying to paint this picture for everybody. This is the vision that they have for the kingdom, as it were, right? of what life should be like, of how, what the culture should be like. Uh, and they all are, you know, they, they cast their own vision and everybody sort of lines up behind the candidate whose vision is most similar to theirs. You know, they say, what do I desire life to be like? And they find their candidate who matches. As we read this passage today, one way to think about what we've just read is that one thing that happened last week, Jesus was in the wilderness, it was the temptation of Jesus, he was there with Satan who was with him and tempting him in these three specific ways. One way to think about that is you had Jesus and you had Satan. They had two competing visions for what life in this world ought to look like. And what they did is essentially they battled it out in private And Jesus won. He was faithful, he was victorious, and he overcame. And now, as he goes to begin his public ministry, he is publicly proclaiming his vision of what the kingdom of God is like and what it will be like as it comes in this earth. What we have, this is Jesus' first sermon. What I'm doing is preaching a sermon about a sermon, because this is Jesus preaching a sermon in this passage. Uh, casting his own vision, saying this is the kingdom of God. This is what it is like. And so we see two things, and these are Jesus' two points, so they'll be my two points as well because I can't outdo Jesus' choice of points. But he announces the kingdom, and then he tells us how it comes. He announces the kingdom, and he describes what it's going to be like. And then his second point is he describes how the kingdom comes. But first he announces it, and this is interesting because each of the gospel writers portrays the beginning of Jesus' ministry a little bit differently, Uh, which doesn't mean that one is right and the others are wrong, that that each one of them is telling us not only what happened, but they're telling us what it means. They're trying to set it in the big picture. They're trying to give us the context and help us understand it. So Matthew, immediately after he tells the story of the temptation in the wilderness, He quotes Isaiah 9. The people living in darkness have seen a great light. And he tells us that Jesus begins preaching, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. 
In Mark, Mark is very brief. Mark is always very brief. He only writes two verses about the temptation in the wilderness. And then he says, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God uh, and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. And then he goes into the ministry, but that's the introduction. Luke, as we expect, Luke is the longest of the gospels. Luke gives us the most detail. He really fills in this opening scene of Jesus' ministry. He tells the whole story here about Jesus going to the synagogue in Nazareth on the Sabbath, preaching this sermon on Isaiah 61. He tells us sort of how does this sermon play out, right? Not only what was the reaction, but he gives us at least two of the points that Jesus makes, which have wildly different reactions. Uh, Matthew and Mark both basically summarize. They give us the summary and they say, the message was the kingdom of God is at hand. Well, Luke does the same thing. He doesn't use those words. He gives us the sermon that Jesus preaches that shows us that the kingdom of God is at hand. Right? And the others, they just tell us this is what happened. Luke shows us how it happened. Because he quotes, well, he has Jesus reading Isaiah 61 and saying, today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Right? And, and what that means is the kingdom of God which is described in Isaiah 61, it's at hand. It's here, right? Today it's been fulfilled. So now in the life of Jesus and in his ministry, this kingdom that he's describing, it's here, it's at hand. Uh, which is great because Matthew and Mark, they're both really brief and they kind of leave you wondering, kind of wanting more, kind of curious. You know, what does that mean that the kingdom of God is at hand? What is that going to look like? You want them to fill out that vision uh, for this kingdom that, that he's announcing. Luke, he actually tells us more. He gives us some of the details. So he shows us this story, and here's Jesus. He says he's, he comes to Nazareth, which is his hometown. He was from Nazareth. It's where he had been brought up, it says. Uh, and it tells us that, it says, as was his custom. So this is something that Jesus did regularly. He went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day. Of course, we're still, right, this is Old Covenant. So Sabbath, Saturday, that's when they worshiped. They went to the synagogue for that. And he went and he stood up to read and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah is handed to him. Now this uh, is, is probably exactly what anyone in that day would have expected. Now you go to the synagogue for worship. Uh, they presumably would have had a time of singing psalms together to open their time of worship together. Uh, and then, when it comes time for the sermon, it would have been very common and expected uh, for a visiting rabbi to be given the privilege of preaching the sermon. And we've already read in this passage, it says, uh, we read in verses 14 and 15, that Jesus has been going about all of the surrounding country, and he's been teaching in the synagogues and being glorified by all. So by this point, uh, we know Jesus is actually a well-known teacher. He's been being glorified for that. And so when Jesus comes to his hometown synagogue, uh, presumably they know him, or they have at least heard the reports of him. He's being glorified by all. And so it's, it's reasonable and it's expected that they would have deferred to him. Right? If Jesus shows up at worship, you let him preach. Right? And even they did that then. So they, they hand him the scroll. And they give him the scroll of the prophet Isaiah. And it says, and I'll just... 
enjoy this one little detail with you for a moment. It says, uh, this is verse 17. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it is written. Now, he's reading from a scroll. Obviously, they don't have books like we have today, so it's in a scroll. Uh, and, and remember, in those days, it would not have been divided into chapters and verses, making everything so convenient for us to find the passage. It would have just been one straight narrative, the entire thing. In fact, they didn't even divide words. It was just letter after letter, the entire book of Isaiah. Which means it would not have been an easy task to find this passage. I, I believe we're given this picture here of Jesus being so intimately familiar with the scriptures that even to find this passage in a reasonable amount of time in a scroll like this was quite a feat. I just appreciate that point. It says he finds this passage. He finds this passage. Uh, he reads it. Right? So he reads the text for the sermon that day, which is these verses out of Isaiah 61. Uh, and then, this would have been the custom. It says he sat down. Right? In synagogues in those days, the teacher would have sat down while teaching. Uh, and so it says he sat down. He gives the scroll back. Right? He rolls it up. He gives it back to the attendant. And he sits down. And as it says, all the eyes in the synagogue were all fixed on him. So here's this uh, up-and-coming rabbi that everyone has heard about. He's read his passage, uh, and, and quite an interesting passage he has chosen. He sits down, and there's this moment, you can almost feel it in the text, there's this moment, everyone's looking at him, waiting for him to say something. What is he going to say? And here's his first point. Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Ancient equivalent of a mic drop, right? Because that is an amazing point to make. He's not explaining it, right? He's not giving the background or the context. He just says, this prophecy has been fulfilled right here, right now, today. And I, I have heard in my day, I've heard a lot of good sermons, not my own. I'm talking about other people's sermons. I've heard some really good ones. I've never heard a preacher do this to say, right now, this scripture is being fulfilled by the very act of my being here and preaching this. This is a level all its own. But Jesus is saying in his own way, he is saying, the kingdom of God is at hand. The kingdom of God is at hand. Uh, but he doesn't just announce it, he tells us, this is what it looks like. And you know what it looks like? It looks like good news for the poor. Liberty for the captives sight for the blind, liberty for those who are oppressed, the announcement of the year of the Lord's favor. Now, I actually want, if you have your Bibles, turn to Isaiah chapter 61. That passage there that Jesus reads is from Isaiah 61, the first two verses, but I want to read more of that chapter for us because I want us to have a little bit bigger of a, a picture in mind of this passage that Jesus is quoting from, because he only quotes a portion of it, but the entire passage is, is really important. I wonder, what do you think of first when you think of the kingdom of God? It's a big question. Right? What comes to mind when you just hear the phrase, the kingdom of God, or even this announcement, the kingdom of God is at hand, what does that mean to you? For Jesus, he fills it out with this passage, and I want to read more of the context here. What happens a lot of times is we think of that in a very narrow sense. We tend to think only of the spiritual aspect, that, okay, the kingdom of God means uh, we may be saved, right? We're saved from our sins by faith in Jesus, which is great, 
but in reality, that's one part of a much bigger picture in this passage. Uh, Isaiah 61, it, it gives us this much broader, kind of fuller picture of what all of life is like in that great day when Jesus makes all things new. Right? When the kingdom of God comes and God restores his broken creation and he puts things back together and God himself rules as king. And, and the question is, what happens then? Right? When God is king over all the earth, and he is actively ruling, making all things new, putting broken things back together, what does it look like? What would that feel like? And yes, we're saved from our sins as part of that. We live with our God, but it's, it's bigger than that. So just listen. Let, let me read part of this chapter. And I'll just start in the beginning, Isaiah 61. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to grant to those who mourn in Zion to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, a garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified." They shall build up the ancient ruins. They shall raise up the former devastations. They shall repair the ruined cities, the devastations of many generations. Strangers shall stand and tend your flocks. Foreigners shall be your plowmen and vine dressers. But you shall be called priests of the Lord. And they shall speak of you as of the ministers of our God. You shall eat the wealth of the nations, and in their glory you shall boast. Instead of your shame, there shall be a double portion. Instead of dishonor, they shall rejoice in their lot. Therefore, in the land they shall possess a double portion. They shall have everlasting joy. For I, the Lord, love justice. I hate robbery and wrong. I will faithfully give them their recompense, and I will make an everlasting covenant with them. Their offspring shall be known among the nations, and their descendants in the midst of the peoples. All who see them shall acknowledge them, that they are an offspring the Lord has blessed. I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exult in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. As a bridegroom decks himself like a priest with a beautiful headdress, as a bride adorns herself with her jewels, for as the earth brings forth its sprouts and as a garden causes what is sown in it to sprout up, so the Lord God will cause righteousness and praise to sprout up before all nations. And just one more verse from Isaiah 62.5, just because it's one of my favorites. As a young man marries a young woman, so shall your sons marry you. As the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. We hear this passage, and it's speaking of so much more than just this idea of salvation in, in a spiritual sense. It's talking about the full restoration of everything that has gone wrong in their land. Right? It's, it's talking about uh, there's this restored relationship with God. Right? That's in those last verses where it says, your God shall rejoice over you as a bridegroom rejoices over his bride. There's this beautiful relationship that has been reconciled together. There's this, the, the relationship of love and delight and joy and the people wearing this robe of righteousness, it's pictured as a feast. 
Right? There's this feast of celebration and joy that the Lord their God is king. The Lord their God has come and rescued his people. He has set them free. And there's this wonderful relationship of joy. It describes rejoicing and gladness. Right? In verse 3 that we read, he gives a, a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning. So in this kingdom that he's describing, God himself comes and he makes right every wrong. And instead of mourning for all the things that have been lost, for all the things that sin and, and brokenness have taken away from them, for everything that has suffered because they live in a world affected by the fall, for every single one of those, God says, I make those right and I exchange beauty, gladness, and rejoicing instead of your mourning. And there will be this oil of gladness instead of the ashes of mourning. This whole picture of restoration and rejoicing and gladness, it's, uh, it, this is the picture that comes to its, its fullness and its fruition in the words of Revelation 22, where it says, In that day there will be no more tears, no more mourning, nor crying, nor pain, for the former things have passed away. And that's what happens when the kingdom of God comes in its fullness, when it all comes together. But it's more than that. It describes justice being done. Right? It, it describes that one line about the vengeance of God on evildoers. It says God uh, hates robbery. He hates wrong. He loves justice. So it's, it's encompassing now all our interactions in the world that justice will be done. Right? So often in this world, we find that we mourn because of injustice. And injustice is just everywhere we look. We, we suffer from it. We suffer the effects. Perhaps people you know or love suffer under justice not being done. But God loves justice. And when he comes in the fullness of his kingdom, justice will be done without fail. It will be a time of true Sabbath rest. Now, there's one line that Jesus quotes in his sermon that all the commentaries say, it's not from Isaiah 61, it's from Isaiah 58. And Isaiah 58 is a description of the true Sabbath rest that God approves of. And we won't read all that chapter now, but I'll just give you the gist of it. He's, he's confronting the people, and he's calling them out for the fact that they do not observe the Sabbath rightly. He says, instead, what they tend to do is they are hypocrites. They take advantage of the poor. They take advantage of the, the, the uh, weak, the downtrodden, the marginalized. They, they take advantage of them. They do injustice to them. And then, then he says, then they go and they keep the Sabbath. And they think God is pleased. And, he, and the prophet is calling them out and saying, no, the Sabbath that God desires is a Sabbath of justice. It's a Sabbath of, of righteousness. It's a Sabbath of love and kindness for the oppressed caring for the poor, and, and that is the Sabbath that the Lord de delights in. Which means, again, Jesus is now announcing that that is what the kingdom of God is like. It's true Sabbath rest. It's shalom. It's peace. It's all things coming back under the rule of a good, just, strong, powerful, kind, loving king who rules his kingdom with justice, who stands up for the oppressed, who cares for the widow and the orphan and the needy. And justice is done, and God delights in that. And then the final picture, again, describes the year of the Lord's favor. 
Jesus is announcing the year of the Lord's favor, which goes back to another part of the Old Testament. It's the year of Jubilee from Leviticus 25. And we won't go read that either, but if you remember what the year of Jubilee was, every 50 years, they had a year of Jubilee. And that meant, in the year of Jubilee, all land that had been sold during the previous 50 years would return to its previous owner. Anyone who had become a slave or a bondservant would be freed. The big idea was, no matter how much trouble you got yourself into over a 50-year period, no matter how much the world broke down, how much injustice leaked in and ruined everything, every 50 years, God would make it right. God would revert everything right back to the way that it had been. People would be set free out of their bondage and their slavery that they got themselves into, right, through their uh, unjust debts. They'd be set free. And now Isaiah is saying, and, and what Jesus is saying, is he is announcing the ultimate year of Jubilee. Right? He says when the kingdom of God comes in its fullness, that's what happens. Right? Because God comes as king to make everything right put everything back the way it was supposed to be and no matter how much trouble we get ourselves into and we get ourselves into a lot of trouble no matter what our sin has done to us and our sin has had a lot of bad effects on us right? we can't blame others it's a lot of it oftentimes most of it it's because of us it's because of our pride it's because of our sin and we get ourselves into trouble but God says when he is king he will undo all that Right? When he rules in justice and righteousness, he makes everything better. As Tolkien put it, right, he makes everything sad come untrue. He restores with this year of Jubilee. And what Jesus is doing in Luke chapter 4 is he is announcing, this is starting now. Right? This is starting. It hasn't come to completion yet. Right? We know that. It hasn't come to its fullness. We don't see and experience all of the benefits of this kingdom right now, but it's begun. It just hasn't come in its fullness yet. So we still have times when we mourn. Right? We still cry. We still experience injustice. But Jesus has announced that the kingdom is coming. In his ministry, the kingdom is coming. Let me try to illustrate through a story. Uh, in the 1860s, it's a true story, 1860s, uh, the Navajo Indians were taken out of their native lands in New Mexico, and they were marched by the U.S. Army, forcefully marched into uh, a plantation that was a piece of desert in Texas called the Bosque Redondo, uh, and they were to live there in a much smaller land that they had to, to plant and build. There was nothing there. They were just in exile, forced to eke out a living in a barren land. Now, in their native land in New Mexico, they had, had this ancient territory. It was surrounded by what they considered their four sacred mountains where their gods lived. And now they were in exile, right? They were without their gods. They were without their customs. They were not allowed to live the way they had wanted to live. The U.S. Army forced them to live in these uh, basically little apartments that they had to build, which they weren't used to and they didn't like. And it didn't work for them. Uh, they were close to their enemies. They were constantly raided by them. Uh, they did not have their own traditions. They were, it was sad. They were in exile. Everything was broken. Everything was lost. Everything good was gone from them. In 1868, General William Sherman of Civil War fame came to them and he offered them a deal to allow them to return to their homeland. 
And as they were working out this deal in the terms of their agreement, uh, one of the leaders of the Navajo Nation, Barboncito, said, Our grandfathers had no idea of living in any other country except our own. And I do not think it right for us to do so. Before I am sick or older, I want to go and to see the place where I was born. I hope to God you will not ask me to go any other country except my own. This hope goes in at my feet and out at my mouth as I am speaking to you. Well, they work out this agreement and they're going to give the the Navajo people back their freedom and they're able to go back uh, to their native lands in New Mexico. And you can imagine how excited they were. Uh, Many of them sewed new moccasins for the trip. And and here's the thing, it wasn't just the land. It wasn't just that they didn't like Texas, they wanted to be in New Mexico, it was everything. They wanted to be in the land where they were free, where their gods were with them, where they had their traditions. Where, where justice was done for their people, right? Where they were self-governing. It was this whole, full life reality for them. It was going home to the place where everything was right. And it was said that the day before they left on their long march home, some of the young men were so eager to get going. They were just so excited and bubbling over. It says some of them started marching and they went 10 miles in the direction of home And then they turned around and came back because they wanted to leave with their people. They all wanted to go together. They just got a quick 20-mile warm-up in the day before. And you see, they weren't in their land yet. They weren't there. They weren't back where their gods were with them and where everything was right. But the announcement had been made. The announcement of freedom had been given to them. And therefore, they had this this anticipation, this eagerness that everything was right. They weren't there yet, sure, that was just a technicality because they were going back to their own land. Right? Their kingdom was coming. And it says, as they went, the next day they leave, and it says, as they went, they were singing. And they sang this Navajo song, beauty before us, beauty to the right of us, beauty to the left of us, in beauty we walk, it is finished in beauty. You see, what we have in Luke chapter 4 with Jesus' sermon when he reads from Isaiah 61 and he says, today, this has been fulfilled in your hearing. You see, we're not there yet. That, that, this is where we are. We are the Navajo still in Texas. We are believers. We are Christians. We are the elect, but we're still in a broken land, but the announcement has now been made. The kingdom of God is at hand. Right? Jesus is bringing it with his life and death. The kingdom of God is here. And all of these things are going to be done for us. Right? We're not there in its fullness yet, but that's somewhat of a technicality, right? Jesus has begun his good work. He will most surely bring it to completion. Right? The kingdom of God is promised to us, and all of these things are now ours. Right? The liberty for those who are oppressed, the freedom for the captives, the sight for the blind, the good news for the poor, the year of the Lord's favor has been proclaimed, and, the, and it is now surely coming. And we ask, why now? How can it be that it's proclaimed so certainly. It's because of what we talked about last week. Jesus has already defeated Satan in the wilderness. Jesus has already shown himself faithful. Jesus, the good candidate, has already taken out the other one. Right? There's only one candidate left. And Jesus will later, he tells this parable where he says, how can, um, how can you enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless you first tie up the strong man? You know what Jesus did last week in the wilderness? He tied up the strong man. 
He bound the devil in the wilderness where he was faithful, where he obeyed, where we had failed, where Adam had failed, where Israel had failed, and Jesus obeyed. And he has now won the victory. And now what he does, he goes out and he begins to proclaim it. Right? He proclaims the victory has been won. The kingdom of God is at hand. These scriptures are now fulfilled. And he's making the announcement of the kingdom of God, of our freedom. But here's the thing. How does the kingdom of God come? And this is point two of Jesus' sermon. How does it come? The kingdom of God comes through the rejection of Jesus. The kingdom of God comes through the rejection of Jesus. Um, and so here we have this, this second point, and it says first, it says in verse 22 that all were speaking well of him, right? they marveled at him. This first point of his sermon was great. Like, we really love this preacher. They're speaking well of him. But he had a second point as well. He had a second point to bring. And his second point, I'll just say this briefly, he references two stories from the Old Testament, one from the ministry of Elijah and one from the ministry of Elisha, both during the real low point of the entire Old Testament almost. Uh, and there were two instances where Israel rejects the prophet, Elijah and Elisha, and therefore that prophet is sent to somebody else, and good news comes to the world because Israel rejected the prophet. And then the people in the synagogue here, perhaps unwittingly, perhaps very ironically, act out that very story. Right? They reject the prophet right then. They get all upset. They know, like, they hear this and they rec recognize, like, wait a second, he's talking about us. And so they act it out. They actually take Jesus and it says they take him out to the, the brow of the hill on which the city is built and they're getting ready to push him off a cliff. They are actively rejecting Jesus. And therefore, just like it says with Elijah and Elisha, the blessings are going to come to the world. If Israel rejects the Messiah, the blessings will come to the world. What we see is this little prologue right here, this little foreshadowing that the blessings of the kingdom come only through the rejection of Jesus. They come through the rejection of Jesus. And it's not, not, not only here in this passage right, where they don't like his sermon. But it's ultimately at the cross. It's at the cross where Jesus himself is rejected, where he's mocked, uh, where he's scorned, where he's spit on. And he is crucified. And yet in that, in God's own economy, in the rejection of Jesus, there's blessings for the world. Because Jesus was rejected in order that you might be accepted. He's rejected, and he's rejected not just by the people, but at the cross, Jesus himself is rejected by God. Right? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It was God himself poured out his wrath on Christ at the cross in order that he might pour out his love onto you. Right? Because your sins were put on Jesus' shoulders, and he received in his own body the punishment due to us for our sins. And so it's at the cross that the good news is actually fully preached to the poor. And it's at the cross where liberty is, is fully announced for the captives and for the oppressed. It's at the cross that our freedom is purchased. It's at the cross where the year of the Lord's favor is most clearly seen and most fully experienced because we see that the cross, right, this is the very beginning of his ministry and at the very beginning it foreshadows the very end. That the cross is the means through which God's kingdom comes. The cross is the means through which it is established, through which it is secured, through which it is purchased. And the question for us, 
Are we like those who reject it? Or are we like those who receive it by faith and are blessed because of it? And for those who believe and who are blessed, I suggest that we are still like the Navajo, having just been given the gift of the kingdom. And we're not fully there yet. We don't fully experience it. But we walk in eager expectation. We walk in hope. And like the Navajo, as we walk, we sing. We sing of the glories of our God. We sing of the glories of Jesus and his kingdom. We sing of the glories that will be ours when his kingdom fully comes. So friends, hear the good news for you today. The kingdom of God is at hand. Jesus, in his life and death, has bought it, purchased it, and announces it to all who believe. Let's pray together. Father, we're thankful for Christ. We understand that we ourselves were fully powerless to do anything about our sinful condition, anything about this broken world in which we live and under which we suffer. And yet Jesus Christ is our Savior. Jesus Christ has come and done for us that which we can never do for ourselves. And so, Lord, we give you all the praise, honor, glory, and worth because you are worthy to receive it. Lord, may Jesus Christ, his wonderful ministry, his life, his death, be lifted up high for all to see. And Lord, may he draw us to himself. Lord, by the power of your spirit, take your word, press it on our hearts. Make it uh, fully effective for every good purpose you have for us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.